Loneliness is one of the major problems causing depression and sometimes even suicide. Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, begins our study with some observations about winter's cabin fever. We trust by listening you will discover the only lasting solution that can keep you from being a lonesome dove. Those of us that live here in the south, you see the sun comes out and it makes us want to get going again. But what happens up in the north is you can only stay inside so long. I mean, you can only stay in a cabin for so long until you start to burn with cabin fever. In fact, I do a retreat almost every year up in the center of Nebraska, and it always cracks me up because we're we're at this camp in the middle of the boggy dingoes. I mean, you have to drive hours to get anywhere, and yet every year for the last several years when Mary and I arrive, they start coming out of the woodwork of Kansas, of Oklahoma, of South Dakota, of North Dakota, of Colorado, of that whole midsection of the country, and they do it in the dead of winter. Why? Because you can only stay in your cabin so long. And I've never seen a group of couples be so hilarious and so full of relationship and so full of fun and wanting to do skits and everything else. And it's because they're together again. Now, every one of you understand what I'm talking about. Those of you that are young in the audience, like the children in the audience, understand friends. I mean, what child doesn't have a friend? In fact, several friends. In fact, those of you that are parents spend most of your time trying to help the children to make it with their friends, right? Misunderstandings, back together again. But friends are really important to kids. High school kids and college kids. I mean, you go to a a high school graduation, friends. Man, they're weeping and they're wailing. They're not going to ever see each other again. And you have all these friendships. And then you have all these reunions. You know, I, I noticed here in our own hometown in Midlothian, boy, you, you have a reunion and, man, you have people coming back that went to high school 30 years ago. Why? Because when we're young, we understand what it means to be together. One of the things that starts to happen is, as you grow older is there's a tremendous temptation to want to start to live a life alone. You know why? Because you've been hurt in some of those together relationships. Those friendships where your best friend let you down back in grammar school, that starts to happen over and over again. And so it's very easy for you as an older person to start to move away from togetherness. And the brokenness of fellowship begins to invade your life. If you carry that out long enough, you're going to be like some of the older people that I see that are in a rest home all by themselves, and hardly anyone ever comes to see them. And one of the saddest things in all the world is to see an older person who is all alone. And I want you to be forever guarded from that kind of a life. One of the things that starts to produce that is that some of those older people got to be about my age, and they decided that this thing called family... You know, this thing called Jonathan, Joel, Joshua, and Janae that had been produced because Mary and I made a covenant relationship with one another to be married. They decided about my age that, you know, as the gray hair starts to come, that they want out of here. It's just not working too well. And, and maybe there can be, maybe there's something else under the sun. You know, maybe if I move to another place, you know, maybe if I find another partner, especially a younger one, maybe I can go back and recapture something that I've lost. And so a lot of guys my age and a lot of women my age just jettison the relationship that they've had for years. And they're unconnected. 
They go out into the world and I, I, I see them marry this partner or that partner. In fact, I can almost see it happen. It's happened over and over again in the 21 years that I've ministered. One after another, I'll see someone move out of legitimate covenant love relationships and walk out into what they thought would be life. They end up all alone. They can never go back to a family reunion where everyone's together, where it's just that, that family again. They just can't do that because they've splintered that. And that is a tremendous attack of the evil one including the church today, the church today, along with our whole society, is under a tremendously powerful attack to produce an aloneness in your life, for you to be solitary, for you to be alone. And I want to share with you today about a very difficult teaching. In fact, it's called the doctrine of Scripture. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity. And as soon as I mention the word doctrine in our society, everybody gets turned off. Americans don't want to be taught doctrine. In fact, I believe it's one of the major things wrong with our churches today because everything is like cookies and sweets. It's kind of like eating a perpetual diet of uh, Hershey bars. And nobody wants to. In fact, it's, it's preachers like myself that are guilty because we sell you short. You see, a lot of preachers say, well, they can't understand that. They just can't get it. You need to make it really simple. And so we don't open up the scripture and really think hard about it. But the tragedy is when you do that, when you eat a perpetual diet of spiritual sweets, your life starts to become weak and you become flabby. And then you don't have the strength to resist some of the powerful things that the enemy is bringing against you. What I want to get across to you today is that the word doctrine simply means teaching. The word doctrine just simply means teaching. And everybody has teaching. Everybody has something that they believe. The tragedy is many of us don't have a basis for what we believe. And the doctrine of the Trinity, the teaching in the Word of God, which is another way of thinking about it, the teaching of the Word of God about God as Trinity is one of the most essential, one of the most foundational beliefs and teachings in all the Scripture. And you need to be accurate about it. You need to understand it. You need to understand why we believe that the Bible has revealed God as being one person and yet three, one being, one essence, and yet three persons. Now, what we're going to do today, the last time we were together, we talked about the unity of God. Remember that? If you weren't with us, I'll get you all caught up. Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us, Hero Israel, and I said, Hero Church, Hero Believer, the Lord our God is, tell me, one. Say it again. Hear, O Israel, hear, O church, the Lord our God is one. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Good. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's return there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we learn that God is one. Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers, and he's talking to us about the danger of believing there are many gods, of believing in idols, of believing that if you go from one place to another, you change gods. And we talked in our closing time, the last time we were together, we talked about a tremendous impulse in our life to worship false gods. And Paul said to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that the reason you shouldn't worship false gods is they're false. They're empty. They're not there. If you choose to make anything else other than the true God the center of your being, you're going to miss the one. We talked the last time about the one. The reason you need to worship the living God is so vital to your existence is that you have connected. If you've opened your heart and let God's Holy Spirit work in your heart, you and I have been able to connect with the living God. 
And as we praise him, and as we thank him, as we love him, we're turning away from the idols. We're turning away from all the empty things that will suck us into aloneness, suck us into nothingness, suck us into existence that's not really filled with love. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll notice that the Apostle Paul says in verse 6, Yet for us, there is but one God. There's this statement. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. For us, there's only one God. No idols. We are focused on the one true God. But notice what else he says. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things come. So in God, there is a Father. And as the Father, just like I am the source, I am the origin of Jonathan, Joel, Joshua, and Janae, God the Father is the originator. He is the source of all things. That's the essence of fatherhood in the scripture. It is the source from which all things are derived. And so we speak about God as being the Father. But notice the next part of the verse. It says that God is not only the Father, but he's also something else. From whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, one Yahweh, one Jehovah from the Old Testament, but his name, Yahweh of the Old Testament, can be called Jesus the Messiah. And we just had exposed to us the other portion of the teaching of the Trinity that you need to be clear on. God is one. There is one essential divine being. He is a unity. But in that oneness of God, there are, are also, we know from 1 Corinthians 8, two persons. Two persons who can think, feel, and decide. God the Father is presented to us as being an identity, a person who can think thoughts, who can feel feelings, who can decide things with his will. We're also taught in 1 Corinthians 8 that there is God the Son, and God the Son can think, he can feel, and he can decide. We also know from the scripture that Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 that he is going to send another one like himself, and that other one like himself will be called the Comforter, the Counselor. And in Acts chapter 2 we learn that that Counselor, that another one like Jesus is called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came down upon his church at Pentecost. So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Little Presbyterian kids ask this question in the shorter catechism. How many gods are there? And the little children memorize and they respond, there is only one God. There is only one God. Then they're asked another question. How many persons are there in the essence of the one God? And the children respond, there are three persons in the one God. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now what does all that mean? Well, at this time, you need to have some object lessons. So down through the years, preachers have gotten object lessons to illustrate how there can be, how there can be three in one. One of my favorites as a kid is preachers used to take out an egg. And they would say the Trinity is like an egg. And that used to always capture my attention. You know, how in the world could the Trinity be like an egg? It almost sounded like a fertility cult or something. But they would say the Trinity is like an egg. You see, this is one egg, but this one egg has a shell, it has a white part of it, and then it has that gooey, yucky, but yummy, yellow stuff called 
the yolk, right? So all of you know this one egg has three different parts to it. An outer white, uh, outer white shell that's hard, then the white soft part, then the central part that's gooey and yellow, right? You all know that, unless you cook it and then it becomes nice and hard, okay? That's an egg. How many of you think that's a good illustration of the Trinity? It all helps you understand what the Trinity is. Well, stop and think of it. For one thing, this is an egg. It is an it. Is that what I've been teaching you about God? Is God an it? You know, remember I talked to you about all that stuff about don't say may the force be with you. Why did I tell you not to say may the force be with you? Because God is not a thing. God is not an it. God is not impersonal. God is not an egg. So that illustration fails there. Also, I have not taught you that God is one thing that has three different parts to it. God is not one substance that has three different sections in him called the section of the Father, the section of the Son, the section of the Holy Spirit. God is not like an egg. So let's forget about that illustration. It doesn't work very well. Here's another illustration. I had a friend that was a physicist, and physicists always like to write to you and give you profound insight into reality. So this physicist wrote to me and said, I've got a great illustration of the Trinity. I said, what is it? And he told me that his illustration of the Trinity was water. Water was what the Trinity was like. Well, that sounded simple enough. You say, Dave, that's not water, that's ice. And the physicist friend of mine said, that's the point. You see, water is one thing. This is one thing called H2O. The same one thing. But this one thing right in my hand is becoming three. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I have water that is ice, but I also have water dripping off my hand that is a liquid. And some of you that are really brilliant, what else is here going on? There's also water that is a gas. Good. So water is like the Trinity. It is one thing that manifests itself in three different phases. You have the solid phase, God the Father. You have the liquid phase, God the Son. And then you have the permeating influence of the gas phase, God the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a great illustration? It's one substance, water, that manifests itself in three different ways. So I wrote my friend and said, that is a great illustration. There's only one problem with it. It illustrates a heresy. And my physicist friend said, you know, I don't really like that. What do you mean it illustrates a heresy? What I just taught you is a heresy called modalism, which is the belief that there is one essential being of God, one thing called God, but that God reveals himself in three different forms. One time, for example, in the Old Testament, he revealed himself as the creator, father, God. That God often came across as being very cruel and vindictive. And we don't really want to get close to God the Father because he's kind of that cruel, old, puritanical God that is always beating people with a rod. That's the Old Testament God. And that's the form of God revealed in the Old Testament. Then we have the wonder of the New Testament. We have the second person, the Trinity, and now God revealed himself to us in the form of his Son. So in the New Testament, we worship the nice, cuddly, forgiving Jesus who wouldn't hurt anyone, and he is kind, and we can identify with him. He's like our big brother, and we're real close to him. And so we worship the God the Son. 
But we also today, because God the Son has now left us, now we have the third phase of God. Now we have the phase called God the Holy Spirit. And that is the permeating gaseous phase where he's invisible, but he can dwell within all of us. That's called modalism, that God reveals himself in three different forms. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Trinity is. The Trinity is not one essential God who takes on three different phases of existence. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that there is one unity of God. And they exist in three persons. There is a God the Father who can think, who can feel, and who can decide. There is a God the Son who is everything that God is. He has all the essential properties of deity in him. Jesus is divine. And there is also God the Holy Spirit. So from the beginning of time and before all of eternity, in eternity, God is three in one. What does that mean? It means that for all of eternity, God has been in fellowship, in fellowship in the Trinity. It means that togetherness, that's what I started out talking to you about. Why do you get cabin fever? Because you are his image. You were made not to be alone. You were made not to live solitary. You were born not to live by yourself because you reflect an eternal being who right within himself, there, he is filled with love. God the Father loves God the Son who loves God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit loves God the Son who loves God the Father. God the Son loves the Holy, the Holy Spirit and God the Father. They're in a continual perpetual unity of love. And that's a very, very important idea because all of our love, any good gift flows out of that eternal togetherness of love in the Holy Trinity. If you were Islamic here today, you would be worshiping an ultimate being who has no love intrinsically in himself. He's impersonal because he doesn't have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's not a household community of divine togetherness. There is solitariness, there is distance, there is aloneness, there is oneness. But you today have gathered to worship a God where First John tells us that God is love. God, right within himself, has a community of persons who are forever united together in this community of love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You say, Dave, how do you know that that's true? Well, the word Trinity is in the Bible. In fact, anyone that wants to deny the doctrine of Trinity, they'll always say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and that's true. But you say, well, David, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and how do we arrive at what you've just told us, that God is one, that there's one essential divinity, one essential Godhead, and yet there are three persons? How did you ever come to that? Well, I didn't come to that. But the Holy Spirit down through the centuries has revealed to those that are studying the word of God, slowly but surely helping us to understand as we adore the living God to learn about what he's like. In fact, God loves to play like a mystery story with us. And he slowly but surely gives us different hints. And what I want to do is I want to trace out some of those hints. So stick with me. The hints start out in Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The first hint that God is a unity and yet a plurality of persons is given on the very first page of God's revelation to us. 
You remember the verse as well. It goes like this. Then God said. All of you English students, then God said is what? Is it, is it plural or singular? God said, is it plural or singular? It's singular. Then God said, singular. But notice what he says in the, in the next line. Let us. Is us plural or singular? Plural. So we have a singular God carrying on a conversation within himself. It says, then God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. Now you say, well, God's carrying on a, on, a, on a conversation with the angels. And that's possible because God is presented as dwelling with his angelic hosts around him. But as we study the rest of the Old Testament, the angels are not given a primary part in creation. God is always viewed as the agent of creation. So when we put it together with the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis 1, 26, the, 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 the dominant amount of evidence would say that God is carrying on an intrinsic conversation with himself. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. Because you're made in the image of God, and I think you can begin to understand a little bit, get a little inkling of what the Trinity is, if you think about the conversation taking place in your own personality. How many of you have talked to yourself this week? Okay. Wallace McWhorter was working on our Truth Encounter pure, uh, computer over at the house the other day, uh, yesterday, in fact, and Elaine was sitting in the other room, and suddenly I hear Wallace talking away, talking away, talking away. And I said to Elaine, you know, I, I went back and I said, Wallace, you need something? He said, no. And I went back and said, Elaine, what's going on? He says, oh, he always talks to himself while he's working. How many of you are like Wallace? So you all understand. How many of you notice that your mind carries on conversations with itself almost constantly? In fact, in your, in your, in your, in your present personality development, development, you have an old man and a new man. So you have a constant debate going on between the new personality you've received in Christ and that old dead corpse of an old self that you wrestle with. So you all know what it means to carry on an intrinsic conversation with yourself. Your mentality, your personhood, your psychology as a human being reflects a hint about the Trinity. So the Old Testament is telling us that in God there is one God, but he carries on an internal conversation with himself. And as this begins to develop, we find out that he's not just carrying on a conversation between one personality that has different facets to it, but it begins to develop that we have one God who carries on a conversation because he has three distinct personalities within within this one being. You say, Dave, how did that develop? Well, it develops some of the hints are like this. As you're reading the book of Genesis, suddenly as God comes down to talk with Abraham, for example, about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God, these three men appear to Abraham and they just eat a regular meal and then they start carrying on a conversation and one of the men turns out to be the Lord himself, Yahweh himself. And, and, and yet we've also been told in the revelation of the Old Testament that God is a spirit and no one can ever see him. So we have to start putting two to two together. There is one God, but there's one of the persons of God who can't be seen who's a spirit that we've talked about in some of our pastimes together. But there's also a person in God who can take bodily form, corporal form, that you can eat with, that you can see. And it's a little hint from the Old Testament. How do you get that all together? Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. 
We also learn about someone else in the Trinity. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But look at verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved, was hovering over the waters. Who is the Spirit of God? Right in the very first, the second verse of the Bible, we're introduced to the wind of God. And in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the breath of God, his ruach, you might say, the breath of, of his countenance and, and his, of his mouth. But he's also presented, like in Psalm 51, King David prays, O Lord God, praying to the Father, don't take your spirit from me. Take not the Holy Spirit from me in Psalm 51. And so the Old Testament begins to give us hints that in the oneness of God, there is a Father God, there is a second person who can take on bodily form. Another thing we could add here too is that in the Old Testament, you've probably heard, there's what you call the angel of Yahweh, who from time to time appears to different saints in the Old Testament. This angel of Yahweh is viewed as being different from God and yet equal to God. One minute he's viewed as being distinct from God, but the next minute he's viewed as being, being one with God. And so the angel of Yahweh gives us a hint that there is a second person in this divine unity, and then the stress upon the developing personification, you might say, of the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God, gives us the hint as the Old Testament closes that there's something much, very profound to this idea that God is one. He's not just one, but he's also a plurality that can talk, let us make man, that reveals himself not only as God the Father, but also as the angel of Yahweh, as someone who can be seen, someone that can be felt and eaten with. And he's also revealed himself to us as a spirit that can have incredible influence over wide ranges. That clothes the Old Testament. As we open in the New Testament, suddenly the early church was faced with the blazing light of the Son of God coming. And with the coming of the Son of God comes a whole new depth of insight into what God is really like. And all the clues of the Old Testament begin to come together to help us to enter in and begin to just, just begin to solve the mystery of God. In fact, one of the clearest places of what the Trinity is is in a very simple early creed, you might say. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Because in Matthew chapter 28, we have one of the early confessions of first century believers. And almost all of you have taken part, if you believed in the Son, if you've trusted the fact that Jesus died for you, if you've trusted the fact that he rose again, many of you have, have chosen to objectify this before a group of people, to publicly testify it through the act of baptism. Now, I want you to go back into the first century for a minute. Just think that you have become a person that heard in the first century about this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee, died near Jerusalem, and you learned that he died on the cross for your sin. And they told you an incredible thing that when that Galilean died on the cross, that your sins were paid for, that he took the place for you. Something inside of you, like Paul says of the Thessalonians, that our word came to you, not just as word, but it came with power. Something happened to those Thessalonians when they heard that Jesus died in their place on Calvary. The Spirit of God moved them to say, that's true. And some of you can remember the same Spirit moving you. We could have story time now of testifying time where you 
share with me how the Spirit of God moved you. Some of you, he did it in a very quiet way. Some of you were raised knowing that message. Some of you fought against it for years. But finally, you came to that moment in time where you said, you know, this is true. When I hear the gospel, Jesus died on the cross for my sin, something clicks inside. It has that ring of authenticity and truth. And something deep within says, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to be committed to that. Then you also heard that he didn't stay dead. You heard that he rose again from the dead. And just imagine yourself being a first century person that hears for the first time this Jesus, the Galilean, that died near Jerusalem, conquered death the third day. And can you imagine hearing from a man like Paul that says, I've seen him. I was walking on the Damascus Road one day and suddenly this, this, from heaven, this person appeared to me. And something inside your heart, as you hear Paul talking like that, says, you know, this man's telling the truth. This is reality. This is true. And you believe. And, and Paul says in Thessalonians that the word came to them with power and they turned to the living God from their idols. Some of you have done that too. Now, what happens when you do that? When you do that, when you invite Christ into your heart personally, you want to publicly let others know what you've done. And that's what baptism is. And so imagine a first century saint coming to the Apostle Paul, let's suppose one of the Thessalonians, it says, Paul, I've heard something said that when you believe in your heart, when you've really decided that you believe in Jesus, which is something I've done, and you believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead, I've heard that in other places in the empire, they have a ceremony, they have a meeting, they might even go out into the public fountain area of the city, and they dunk you, they put you underwater. Because when you go down underneath the water, they, that you are telling everybody around there that you believe that Jesus died for you and that you are now joined with him in his death. And then when you come up out of the water, you are telling your friends and loved ones that you believe that he rose again from the dead and you let them see a decision that you made invisible in your heart, personally inside. You let them see a drama, an object lesson of that in person by being baptized. And this, this young believer says, that's what I want to do. So you gather together there, right in the center of Thessalonica. Go right down to the public fountains. And Paul wades out and you go out there. Now, how did he baptize you? He baptized you according to the command of his Lord. And we have the early, what we call the early baptismal creed. It's, it's the way the early church, what they said when someone was baptized. What did they say? What they said was exactly what the Son of God commanded them to say. Just before he ascended into heaven, in Matthew 28, one of the last commands that he gave to his church, before he ascended to the right hand of God and sent his Holy Spirit, were these words that you know so well. But maybe you'll think about them in a new way because we've been together today. Verse 19, Jesus speaking, Therefore go. I want you to make followers of me in all the nations. That's what a disciple is. I want you to generate people that will follow me, that will believe in me, that will trust me in all the world, in all the nations. And it says this, as they become disciples, you baptize them in the name. You baptize them in the name. Every one of you were baptized in the name. There's only one God. You are baptized in the name of Yahweh, Elohim, Almighty, El Shaddai, and on and on we could go. You are baptized into the name. You are confessing, I believe that God is one. No idols, no other false gods, just the name. But notice what else you are baptized. In the name of 
Then it says, you were baptized in the name of the Father. You were confessing that you believe that in the name, in the oneness of God, there is a person that can be referred to as a father. All fatherhood flows from him. The essence of what I am to Jonathan, Joel, and Joshua, a protector, the one that, 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 that initially enabled them to be conceived by joining together with Mary, all that a daddy is, all that creative energy, all of that is a mystery that God has given to every one of you daddies because he is the original source of fatherhood. He's the origin of all things. And what you are confessing when you are baptized is that you believe that God's not the it. God's not like an egg. God's not like energy. God's not like water. God is a father. He is like a daddy. I just had another radio guy write to me and he said, how in the world can you ever call God your daddy? And he was right. He said, you know, he said, God is holy. God is transcendent. God is awesome. God is infinitely powerful. How could you ever refer to him as your daddy in heaven? And I'll write back and say, you're exactly right. It's audacious. I would never do it. How could I ever say that the one that dwells in unapproachable light, that's invisible, and that, and that the very, just a little bit of his glory would just totally, you know, just extinguish me, and, and, and it'd be like meeting the sun really up close and personally. It would just, just burn you up. You're right. How could I ever call him under the, the familiar colloquial term of daddy? And I would never do it. But it says in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit of God has been poured into my heart. The Spirit of God says that he moves us to be able to say, Abba. In Aramaic, he moves us to be able to say, my daddy, my dada. Because I am just a little baby. Calvin said that everything we say about God is just a little baby that hasn't really learned to talk. Everything I'm telling you about the Trinity is just baby talk. It just, we just can't get it. But we can begin to say, even babies, my, my, my boys, Jonathan, Joel, and Joshua, and then Janae when she came, they all learned really quick. One of the very first words off their mouth was da-da, da-da, da-da. And evidently, like I've joked with you in the past, evidently in Aramaic, they got out, Abba, 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 one of the very first things they could do. And I pray with every one of you, with all of my heart, that every one of you are worshiping God as your Father. And the Holy Spirit has moved you, and everything you say about Him is just baby talk. But I hope you're falling in love with him as the ultimate father. You girls, every one of you ladies need an ultimate father who will always protect you and always care for you and always cherish you and always be that that original source. You need a dad. And you confess when you are baptized. You believe in the name. You believe in the name of the father. But it doesn't just stop there. It says we, we confess that he is the father, but he's also the son. He's revealed as the Son in the name of the Father and of the Son. Now, what does that mean? What it means is we gather together here that we believe that Jesus that was born in Bethlehem, that is revealed in the four Gospels, we believe an audacious thing about him, an incredible thing about him. He wasn't just a rabbi. He wasn't just a good philosophy teacher. He wasn't just a good social reformer. We believe an incredible thing. We believe that Jesus was none other than the eternal Son of glory, the eternal Son of God. He was the second divine person within the unity of the Trinity. And he came to this earth and took a bodily form just like us. Now we're going to study more later about the unique nature of the Son of God and the union of his divine and human nature. But for the next few minutes, I'm going to do something really important. 
all the cults in some way or another deny that Jesus is divine. And some of you have been sitting in a Bible church ministry. Some of you have been sitting in church for the last 20 years. And yet if a Jehovah's Witness came to your door and knocked on the door and said, could I come in and you let them in, and they start telling you, you can't prove that Jesus is divine. Jesus is a God, just like we're a God and I'm a God and you're a God and Shirley MacLaine's a God. We're all gods. Jesus isn't a uniquely God. What do you say to him? And some of you say, well, man, this is church. Don't expect me to remember anything. This is going to change your life. I really want you to get a hold of this. I want you to begin to realize that because you sit here, you should know something. You should not be afraid of someone that says, you can't prove that Jesus is God. You say, oh, yes, I can't. Oh, yeah, I can't. Sit down for a minute. So you sit down. They sit down and say, I'm going to now show you from the New Testament why we believe that Jesus is God. So you need to get these all down. Number one, John 1, verse 1. Let's start there. For the next few minutes, let me give you a few verses on how we know that Jesus is God. John 1, verse 1. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to say that in their translation, that this should be translated that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's the way they want to translate it. And they do that in their New World translation. That's a horrible way to translate the Greek text. Let's look at what the text says very carefully. It says that in the beginning, so that at the beginning, before there was time, so we're in eternity, in the beginning, already there was the Word, the revealer of God. The Word of God was with God in the beginning. It says this, and the Word was with God. So the very first thing that you need to realize about this is that whoever this Word is, this Word is not equal to God the Father because he is with God the Father. That's very important for the doctrine of the Trinity. And it says that God, this, this word, is with God the Father. He's intimately related. In fact, it says here that he, he corresponds to him. He stands face to face with the Father. He's with the Father. But the next line says, And the word was with the Father, and the word was God. Now, it doesn't use the article, and thank God that it didn't, because if it used the article, it it would be malicious to all that the Scripture says about the Trinity. Because God the Son, the Word, is not God the Father. He is not the God the Father. He is God the Son. And so what we've got to get across here is John 1.1 is saying there is a divine being who is a person who's distinct from God the Father, but he is everything in his essential being that God the Father is. John 1.1 says it very plainly. If you look down the text a little bit further, look down at John chapter 1, and let's look at verse 18. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, No one has ever seen God the Father, you could say, but God, God the Son, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John is explicitly saying in that verse, That no one has ever seen God the Father, but God, the one and only, that is the one and only Son, who is also God, has revealed him to us. This comes to a culmination. In fact, the whole book of John, if you want to get a strong passage on the deity of the Son, the whole book of John is the place to do it. But let's look at one that just drives the point home. John chapter 20, verse 29, or verse 28. In verse 27, the Lord Jesus, this is that Doubting Thomas story you all remember so well. Remember, Doubting Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fist into his side, unless I can plunge my finger into, his, into the nail prints in his hand. I'm not going to believe unless I can do that. 
Jesus says in verse 27 when he appears to him, he appears to Thomas. He says, Thomas, go ahead and put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and thrust it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, how did Thomas respond to that? He says, this is a Jewish man speaking. A Jewish man that knows about Yahweh in the Old Testament and Elohim in Genesis chapter 1. And notice what he says. Thomas says, my Yahweh and my Elohim. My Lord and my God. And he's worshiping before him. That's the high point of the revelation of the Gospel of John. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God. Let's look at some other references in the New Testament that explicitly say that Jesus is God. Romans 9, 5. There's several we can do, but we won't have time. Let's just look at Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Romans 9, 5. Paul's talking about the gifts that the Jewish people have because they've been given so much of the revelation of God. And there he says this in verse 5. There it is. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah Christ. Whenever you read Christ, read Messiah. And notice what it says next. The Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Explicitly, it says that Jesus is God. A couple other references you could judge it down is Titus chapter 2, verse 13, 2 Peter 1, 1. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, because this is a very good one to use with the Jehovah's Witness. Because it uses an Old Testament reference that refers to Yahweh, and it uses that Old Testament reference directly to refer to Jesus. It uses Psalm 104, verse 4, to refer directly to Jesus. But about the Son, he says in verse 8, your throne, O God. So it calls the Son of God, God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and the righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, that would be your father, God, your God, the father, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And here we have the Trinity working. God, the son, is referred to as God. And God, the father, is referred to as God. And God, the father, is referred to as giving the the, the righteousness, the kingdom, the throne, and anointing him with the oil of gladness to his son. And there you have the working of the Trinity. A great verse to prove that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So that's how we prove the deity of the Son. What about the Holy Spirit? There's really only one time in the New Testament, so you need to remember this. There's only one time in the New Testament that the Spirit of God is explicitly referred to as God. But it only takes once. And, and when we study this, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit together, I'll give you a lot of other reasons why, the, why I believe the Holy Spirit is divine. But today I'll only be able to give you the explicit reference. It's Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And that's a story you all know well. It's a story where Ananias and Sapphira lied. They, they said they sold all the land, gave all the money. Instead, they held back some of the money. The Apostle Peter looks at them and he says, Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in the very next verse, he says, Why did you lie to God? And so you have a direct, it doesn't take a lot of logic. Peter says, You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. It's an explicit reference. The Holy Spirit is divine. And so we have the doctrine of the Trinity flowing out of the teaching of the New Testament, which says that God the Father is a person, God the Son is a person who's also divine, and God the Holy Spirit is a person who's also divine. Say, Dave, what's the illustration? You didn't like the egg. You didn't like uh, the water. Then what illustration do do you use? 
The Bible talks about the fact in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed like this, Father, I pray that they might be one even as we are one. I want all of you to know that you become an object lesson of the Trinity. You know why? Because you're here today because you're family. You're the family of God. As I look around, there's, there's all distinct personalities. There's all these different personalities. And yet you have gathered together and you are one body, the body of Christ. And you are therefore a unity. It's a unity where persons, people that can think, feel, and decide, choose to be united in a unity of community. Why do you hunger for that? Why did God create the church to be like that? Because that's what he's been for, from all of eternity. A unity of love. You say, Dave, then why did the people get angry? And why did people walk away from the church? You know, why, do they, why did some people that I know just forever go away from it? They don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, the essential reason is they walk away from worshiping the Trinity. They walk away from believing that God the Father is really their daddy in heaven. They walk away from a God the Son that, that really does love them and gave their, his life for them. And they walk away from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They walk away from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a part of me that can come here and not worship today. There's a part of me that can be a million miles away. You know what I find? As soon as I stop focusing on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you know what begins to happen? I start to be estranged. I start to get angry with you. And I start to want to get away from you. I start to focus on myself. And I don't want to sacrifice for you. You see, it's, it's moving away from worship. Do you understand this? You know what's ruining our lives today is we don't understand that worship is enjoying intimacy with the triune God. And what's wiping us out is we begin to worship things and we begin to worship our own dreams. We begin to worship even our own feelings. And we stop worshiping the Trinity and obeying what the Trinity wants us to do. And it wipes out our body, the one body, the unity of the body of Christ. We walk away from closeness together. What happens in our marriage? Marriage is one of the primary focuses where the doctrine of the Trinity is viciously at work. Because what I've told you, the Trinity is a, is, a, is a covenant relationship of love within the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been united forever in a household of unity. Three distinct persons that are always a continual oneness, always thinking together, always feeling together, always deciding together, always maintaining their distinction, but always together. Mary and I, I realized that Mary was a distinct person. Have you realized that? Have any of you understood that, that have gotten to know us a little bit, that Mary is not the same personality that I am? Mary is definitely a distinct person. She has a brilliant mind. She thinks her own thoughts. She has her own emotions and she has her own will. Amen, amen. She met another person called Dave Wilson who can think, feel, and decide. We had a ceremony in a church. And in that ceremony in a church, Mary, the distinct person, chose to join herself with me, the distinct person, and I, the distinct person, chose to join myself with her. And the idea was this, is that as we united together, that we would picture a love relationship that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church. But we also picture something else. Why, does, why did Mary and I want to get together? Why is it that men and women want to unite together? Why do they want to be together? Why do they want someone to go through life? Why is it bad for man to be alone? Because the Trinity is not about aloneness. The Trinity is always about togetherness. 
And see, what Mary and I were doing is there's this eternal hunger for us to be like God. So Mary and I fell in love. We wanted to be together. And our marriage is supposed to be Mary thinking, Dave thinking, but we think together. Not the same thoughts, but united in harmony. Feeling together, not feeling the same, not losing our identity in one another, but but feeling together, harmoniously moving back and forth and deciding together. And then in a marriage relationship, it's expressed physically. And God doesn't turn red. The very first thing God says, let us make men in the image of God, let us make them male and female. Then he said, let them be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. Because love is meant to be fruitful. Love is meant to multiply. And sexuality is all about that, but it's also about something much deeper than just generating children. You see, in a marriage relationship, when you unite together, my distinct personality remains intact, and Mary's distinct personality remains intact, but we become one, a new oneness. And that's why sex is such a holy thing. The the Trinity is not illustrated by eggs or water. It's illustrated by Mary and I and all of you that are married. It illustrates a covenant relationship, a covenant promise. And the reason it's so holy, the reason it's so sacred, the reason it's so exclusive is because it's such a penetrating, powerful object lesson of what the ultimate being in the universe is like. Only he's not two that become one. He is three who are one forever, forever, and ever. You know, that's also why I want to walk out at times. It's also why I get angry at times. It's also why it's such a chore to be able to make this lifelong pilgrimage together because there is a vicious, dragonian enemy called Satan, the adversary. That's what Satan means. He's the adversary. You know what? Satan hates what I just told you. So you know what he does? He makes someone walk into my office and they talk about sex with four-letter words constantly. You, those of you that go out into the workplace this week, you'll constantly hear about sex referred to in four-letter words. You kids going into the locker room, kids will tell dirty jokes. It'll be one dirty joke after another. You don't talk about making love. You talk about blankety-blank. That's what you do. And they use a four-letter word to describe it. You use all kinds of dirty language to describe sex. Why? Because Satan hates it. Satan hates it. So he takes this beautiful, exquisite object lesson, the best illustration of the Trinity there is, and he rips it to smithereens. He gets men to walk away from covenant relationship and go out with someone else, and that destroys the Trinity of love. He gets a woman to do the same thing, and it goes on and on and on. What I want you to understand is that doctrine of the Trinity, rather than a, a theological doctrine that Dallas seminary students wrestle with in some exotic strange encounter there on Swiss Avenue. The doctrine of the Trinity is the heartbeat of my life and yours. God has called us to a trinity of love. We worship a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. Therefore, you need to stay together. Therefore, you need to realize that you'll never find the meaning of your life in aloneness. you always find it in togetherness. And it has to be togetherness built on obedience to the ultimate togetherness. And if you walk away from obedience to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, then you have walked into a false, diabolical lie, a togetherness that will ultimately produce the ultimate isolation. And it's very serious what I'm talking about today. What I want you to do, what's the healing for that? What's the antidote for that? How do we get through life and really find the meaning? We worship. 
We worship God the Father. We worship God the Son. We worship God the Holy Spirit. You know what? That precious Holy Spirit is in all your hearts that have believed to move you to do that. Think of, of our Father opening his hand, that marvelous picture of the hands with the stars coming out. Listen, if he can hold his hand and the stars are thrown into space, can he give you love? Can he help your life to hold together this week? Isn't he going to be more satisfying than anything you can imagine? And God the Son, look at all that God the Son has done for you. He stretched his arms on Calvary and paid the penalty for your sin. Janae said, what, what would have happened if Jesus didn't die? She said, couldn't I die for my sins? I said, yes. On the way to breakfast today, Janae said, couldn't I die for my sins? And, and, and I said, yeah, you could die for your sins. And then Janae said something really profound. He said, that would be bad because then I'd be eternally gone, eternally lost. That's right. You can pay for your sins. All of us can in hell. But what a great hope today. Jesus didn't say pay for it in hell. He said, I already took the rap for you. I'm your, I'm your brother. I'm the son of God. I did it for you. And then he says, I don't want you to be alone. I, I, don't want you, I want you to have my presence living inside. So the third person of the Trinity, I believe with all my heart, the third person of the Trinity is working right now among all of you. He's doing an incredible miracle. Because to me, what I've done in this hour is absolutely, from a human standpoint, stupid. What I've talked to you about today used to enamor saints. Augustine and, and the, uh, the great, great uh, doc, the doctors of of the middle-aged church, they used to fight and argue, and and the whole body of Christ would be excited about this. Nobody gets excited about the Trinity anymore, and that's what's wrong, because we don't understand it anymore. It's not serious to us anymore. And I want you as a group of believers to recapture the incredible mystery. I want you to be like little Presbyterian kids, that when you're asked, how many gods are there, you'll be able to say, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. There's one God. And then when they ask, but how many persons are there? You'll be able to say, there is one God, but there are three persons. There is my precious God the Father that I love as my daddy in heaven. There is the precious God the Son, who's my redeemer and friend, who paid the penalty for my sins and rose again. And there is God, my Holy Spirit. And so we have the worship of God the Father. We have the transcendence of the Episcopalians. We have the worship of God the Son. We have the Reformation gospel of the great Reformation churches. And we can jump with the best of them because we have the worship of God the Holy Spirit. And we can play our drums and we can celebrate with our lives. And we can let that sweet Holy Spirit make us into Christ. You think the Trinity is not important? Yes, it is. Because the only way you can become balanced in your faith is to worship the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's do it. Let's close and do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray to you because your Son has adopted us into your family. We are moved to pray because your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within our hearts and moves us to pray. I pray, Lord, that you would take the teaching of your word. You've told us that your Son is your word, but your Son has also told us that you have breathed through every word of Scripture. And so, Lord, we're going to ask you to do something that will not take place unless you do it. As we leave today, I pray that we would leave with understanding. I pray that we would leave with an increased desire to be together, together with you, together with our families, together in our marriages, together with our friends, together as a church.
And we pray, Lord, that, the, that as we begin to reflect the love and the togetherness and the unity of the Trinity, that love that will last forever, that the gates of hell can't even touch, I pray, Lord, as we, we begin to drink from the love of the Trinity, that we will begin this week to fulfill your son's prayer. Oh, Father, I pray that they might be one, even as we are one. Bring healing to some of the brokenness, Lord. I pray for some of my dear brothers and sisters who have experienced tremendous brokenness and separation. And I just ask with all my heart that they'll realize that today we've learned about a oneness that will never be destroyed, that can never be attacked, that can never be torn down. And that that precious relationship they have with you as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is going to take them into love, a love that will last forever and ever and ever. Give us hope, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.